Well, thank you everyone for joining our session today on pain management in urologic surgery. Uh, we have an expert panel of urologists today who span uh, several areas of urology from endourology to reconstruction, prosthetics, uh, all the way to urologic oncology. And while these areas won't cover all subspecialties of urology, our hopes that many of the same principles that they will speak about today can be applied to all other areas of urology as well. And so the goal of this session today is going to provide some practical information for the practicing urologists regarding pain management in urologic surgery. And so with that, I'd like to introduce our speakers, all of whom are experts in pain management in their respective fields. First, we have Dr. Nicole Miller. She is an associate professor of urology at Vanderbilt University, where she specializes in endourology. She's co-director of the Minimally Invasive Surgery and Endourology Fellowship at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. And she's gonna be speaking about why pain management is so important to urologists. And she'll also highlight some important aspects of managing patient expectations through a case presentation. Following that, we'll have Dr. Jay Simhan, who's an associate professor at Fox Chase Cancer Center. He's also the vice chair and program director of the Department of Urology at Einstein Medical Center, where he specializes in reconstructive urology and prosthetics. And he's gonna be talking more about pain perception and how to use that to design multimodal pain protocols. And then finally, we have Dr. Ben Davies, who's professor of urology at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where he also serves as chief of the urology section at Shadyside Hillman Cancer Center, and he also serves as the director of the urologic oncology program. He's going to be speaking to us more about patient-reported outcomes as they relate to pain management and the use of opioids in oncologic procedures, particularly minimally invasive surgery. So with that, I'll turn the presentation over to Dr. Miller. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, Dr. Smith, thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, so as Dr. Smith said, I'm gonna be talking about pain management and endourology specifically. Kidney stone patients uh, often experience recurrent bouts of severe pain, uh, often leads to emergency visits, and therefore these patients are commonly prescribed opiates, which can lead to addiction, misuse, and also diversion. And so I think there's a lot of interest in trying to minimize opioid prescribing in this group of individuals. Here are my disclosures. So what matters when we think about opiates? I think we can break it down into three practical points. The risk of overdose increases based on the amount of opioid prescribed per day. This is demonstrated in the graphs seen on the left portion of the slide. MME is the amount of morphine in milligrams equivalent to the strength of the opioid prescribed. Using MME allows comparison between the strength of different opioids. For example, 10 hydrocodone tablets would, would equal 50 MME. As the amount of MME increases, so does the risk of overdose. You can also see uh, by the study from Shaw and colleagues that the one in three year probabilities of continued opioid use is uh, linearly increases with the number of days prescribed in the initial opioid prescription. And as you get to about three days, that's when the risk significantly increases. Finally, Howard and colleagues have shown that the amount of opioid that's prescribed to patients predicts how much they're going to consume. So we know that if we give them more, they will be at higher risk of overdose. If we give them a longer duration, they're going to be at, at risk for for persistent use, and if we give them more, they take more. So this is what matters in opioid prescribing. 
So if we look specifically at endourology, uh, this study from Tam and colleagues looked at persistent opioid use following outpatient ureteroscopy as an endourologic procedure. And they found that one in 16 or 16.2% 16 of opioid naive patients developed persistent use after ureteroscopy. And as we discussed in the previous slide, those that were prescribed more opioids at the time of ureteroscopy had the highest risk of persistent use. Our uh, investigators here at Vanderbilt also looked at post-operative doctor shopper, shopping following ureteroscopy. In this retrospective study of patients undergoing ureteroscopy, we used the Tennessee Controlled Substances Monitoring Database to identify the number of post-operative narcotics prescribers for these patients. And doctor shopping was defined as more than one narcotic provider within three months of surgery. 24% of patients had narcotics prescriptions by more than one provider. And when we used a multivariable logistic regression model to look at predictors of doctor shopping behavior, we found that preoperative narcotic use, psychiatric history, and an educational status that was lower was associated with this behavior. In a follow-up study, we also looked in our ureteroscopy population at predictors of increased use, again in the ureteroscopic kidney stone population. Using the TN-CSND, we identified that 12% of our ureteroscopy patients got ad additional opiate prescription within 30 days following ureteroscopy, and 7% got prescriptions past 60 days. And again, logistic regression revealed the factors associated with increased use were patients being preoperatively exposed, having increased number of prescriptions, the number of days we prescribed them, and the number of unique providers. So in the uh, in the studies I've discussed so far, I think I've shown you what the increased risks are for persistent use. But we also know that there's a lot of variation in opioid prescribing. This study using a private insurance claims database of over 49,000 patients showed substantial variation in the initial opioid prescribed. As you can see by the figure here, patients who were undergoing cystoscopy and stent insertion often got the same amount of narcotic as a patient having an open cystectomy or nephrectomy. And I think that this tells us that it's probably more our prescribing behaviors than patient need that results in this variation. When variation in opioid prescribing was looked at specifically for the endourology uh, patients, this study using the National Women Veterans Cohort Study looked at over 1,500 patients, and the median duration of an opioid prescription was 10 days, with a median MME of 180, which is equivalent to about 24 Percocet tablets, although there was substantial variability in prescribing from 140 to 300 MME. PTSD was one of the uh, diagnoses that was associated with a higher dispensed dose, but interestingly, the type of surgery was not predictive. So patients having a minimally invasive procedure like ESWL were often given as much opioid as a patient having a more, in a more maximally invasive procedure like a PCNL. So I think I'm gonna use this case presentation as a platform to describe how we can do better and how we can minimize uh, opioid prescribing. So this is a 45-year-old male who came to the emergency department with left flank pain, uh, nausea, vomiting, and gross hematuria. Uh, he had left CVA tenderness on examination, and the laboratory analysis demonstrated normal renal function. Because there was concern for renal colic, he underwent non 
contrast CT imaging, which is shown here showing a seven millimeter left proximal ureteral stone with hydronephrosis. So that begs the question, when you have a patient in the emergency room with acute renal colic, what is the best treatment for pain management? This has been addressed nicely in the EAU guidelines, which, which cite level 1B evidence showing that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are superior to opioids for acute renal colic. This is due to the fact that they provide equivalent pain control, but are associated with fewer side effects and fewer need for rescue analgesia. And so I think it's a strong recommendation that for this patient group, we want non-steroidal anti-inflammatories first and opiates second. And I've listed here the common non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that are used. So this patient was initially treated with a trial of passage, but failed to pass the stone and underwent left ureteroscopic stone treatment with laser lithotripsy. The stone was found to be very impacted at the time of surgery and a ureteral stent was placed. I think we all know that ureteral stents are one of the main sources of postoperative pain in the endourologic patient. There is a lot of evidence for using non-narcotic agents for pain control following endourologic procedures. These agents include non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, acetaminophen, anti-muscarinics, and alpha blockers. In this meta-analysis from 2015, it was shown that both alpha blocker monotherapy and anti-muscarinic therapy, as demonstrated in these forest plots, was favorable compared to uh, other uh, agents. And in fact, if you combine the alpha blocker and the anti-muscarinic together, combination therapy was superior. So there is evidence for using non-narcotic agents in these patients. At Vanderbilt, we developed an enhanced recovery after surgery protocol. We really wanted to look at the entire perioperative period. Uh, and we gave patients acetaminophen and gabapentin in the preoperative area. Intraoperatively, patients were given non-narcotic anesthesia. Uh, we used BNO suppository and Ketorolac intraoperatively. And then on discharge, we used a multimodal regimen, including a non-steroidal uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen. We used anti-muscarinic of oxybutynin and an alpha blocker of tamsulosin. Utilizing this ARIS protocol, we were able to show a 90% reduction in our th total 30-day postoperative opioid prescribing without any adverse effects on patient outcomes or postoperative unexpected clinical encounters. Other groups have looked at non-opioid protocols for stent pain specifically following ureteroscopy. And Sobel and colleagues showed that 73% of their patients could be discharged without opioids. Again, with no difference in emergency room visits, telephone calls, or refill requests. What I like so much about this study is there is a major emphasis on patient education and the multidisciplinary buy-in in order to reduce opioid prescribing and utilization. Investigators from Johns Hopkins published recommendations for opioid prescribing following endourologic and minimally invasive urology procedures. This was based on an expert panel consensus. They're noted here. And they were uh, specifically looking at opioid-naive patients without chronic pain conditions and recognized that some patients do not want or require any pain medications, and so the minimum amount for opioid prescribing in these procedures should be zero. So I think take-home message for the endourology patients is that they're a unique group that are at particular risk for opiate exposure. The amount that we give them really predicts their risk of prolonged use. 
when possible, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are the preferred analgesic for acute renal colic, but we need to be mindful of preserved renal function. We want to use multimodal approaches. And when we use non-opioid or reduced opioid protocols, there's no adverse effects on patient-reported outcomes. So I thank you so much for your attention and for this opportunity. Thanks, Dr. Miller. That was incredibly helpful. I think we all, as urologists, take care of kidney stone patients. So uh, I think your your uh, your suggestions on your multimodal pain regimen is very helpful. You touched upon patient buy-in, and I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. And what's the importance of that? And to the practicing urologist listening in, what would be your suggestion on how to obtain that buy-in? Yes, thank you. That's an excellent question. Uh, you know, I don't think that you can uh, overemphasize the importance of the patient being part of the pain management strategy. I mean, we have to not only educate the patient, but we also need to provide realistic expectations, meaning you know, surgery is painful and postoperative pain is temporary. So our goal should be to get them back to routine daily activities rather than necessarily making them pain-free. And I think when we do that, you know, they feel part of the solution, um, and that that's very powerful, and, and particularly in the kidney stone population where they may have been given opioids in the past, you really need to have them accepting to try something new. Absolutely. But I, I think overall, everyone wins when we give less opioids. Thank you. Thank you so well, much. Of course. Um, so our next speaker is Dr. Jay Simhan. Uh, I've already introduced him, but he's going to be speaking about uh, pain management in terms of pain perception and multimodal strategies uh, specific to prosthetics and reconstruction, but I think also applicable to other areas of urology as well. Thank you, Dr. Simhan. Thanks again, uh, Dr. Smith, and uh, certainly the panelists. I know it's, uh, it's really an honor to present and to the AUA for the invitation to present today. Um, you know, I'll start with uh, going uh, through and, and giving you my disclosures. Um, you know, to, to begin, I think, you know, reconstruction is a field, if you look at contemporary practice or even historical practice, that really focuses on surgical technique. And so when I first started my practice, we were sent cases like this, where you really, uh, this is a Fournier's patient that really presented motivated for a penile implant. And a lot of times, patients really get caught up in the, can, your op can my operation be done? Please look at me, doctor. And I, I really was focused on that when I started out my practice. And what I ultimately found was the challenge of taking care of them postoperatively. And, you know, I really struggled in managing patients that had such difficult operations and, and doing the operation was one part of it, but getting them through it was actually uh, a significant challenge for me. And so as I, as I tried to sort of grapple with all of these patients that were calling my office with pain and pain issues, I tried to understand the problem. And, and really for me, my hope is to try to convince you of multimodal strategies to control pain in your patients. And so uh, this is just a med school 101 sort of characterization of how at least I understood pain. And so pain is ordinarily perceived from local inflammation. There are numerous inflammatory mediators that are released. These are, again, things that we all learned in medical school, bradykinin, prostaglandin, substance P, histamine. 
These have various targets along the spinal cord and supraspinal centers, and then ultimately patients experience pain. So it stands to reason that if you're able to create a multimodal strategy that targets these numerous inflammatory mediators along the way, you can create a scenario where you're able to control patients' pain. Unfortunately, when you look at the body of literature done throughout reconstruction or prosthetics, you might notice, though, that a lot of the pain management series previously, you know, tried to really control pain perioperatively. But for the things that Dr. Miller, I think, uh, really nicely presented to us, it was very challenging to find studies, at least in my field of reconstruction and prosthetics, that really looked at validated ways of assessing pain, follow-up of patients' pain, as well as using a generalizable strategy to managing pain. And so we were, we were fortunate to come up with a, a protocol to really look at this in a very small cohort. But I think where we were, we were more fortunate was to be able to develop a prospective multi-institutional strategy in prosthetics patients of incorporating a regimen and then comparing it to an opioid-only cohort uh, for pain control. And, you know, once we were able to get this published, I think this is something that we have incorporated, certainly in my practice, but I think other implant surgeons, other reconstructionists, and then even throughout our department from a quality improvement standpoint, we, we continue to do. And so let me sort of walk you through what that, what that is. Um, similar to what was discussed earlier, this is, this is pre-medicating patients in the holding area to sensitize the pain receptor with acetaminophen. Uh, using uh, neuropathic pain control with gabapentin, and then meloxicam or silicoxib for a long-acting NSAID for pain control. You would then dose augment that with an intraoperative nerve block and then continue those medications on a scheduled basis uh, postoperatively. And of course, you can still write sort of oxycodone for breakthrough pain, but in the penile implant patient, the goal was to actually reduce our administration of oxycodone. And, and you can use these kinds of pain scores that have been around for many, many years. And ultimately, what we were able to demonstrate was a dramatic improvement in pain reduction perioperatively. But I think more importantly, we were able to look at this sort of from the number of narcotics patients were given and show a dramatic reduction, not only in the amount of narcotics prescribed, but in the number of refills required. And so multimodal analgesia, at least for us, was seen as something that can work. And, and you know, it was something where we were able to incorporate, um, you know, this type of strategy in managing patients to really traverse the entire recovery period. Um, you know, other things that, you know, for us, I think that are important and I think is translatable to other fields within urology is really this concept that also Dr. Miller touched on is that really patients require less opioids and less, they perceive pain less with non-opioid management strategies. And so, you know, for us, as I was mentioning earlier, from a quality improvement standpoint, we were able to utilize this type of trimodal therapy in most patients, unless there were contraindications. And I'll talk just briefly about how we titrate up gabapentin in, in our patient population with, with fairly good results. So here's a quick case of a patient that I wanted to sort of go over that might illustrate a few of these points. 
This is a 58-year-old patient that underwent a robotic prostatectomy several years ago. They had failed uh, conservative management for their erections and ultimately presented for a penile implantation consult. And um, this is a highly motivated patient whose past medical history is notable, though, for back pain, as well as preoperative uh, uh, oxycodone use at baseline. And, and so the question really becomes, what factors do we look at in a patient's preoperative history that's significant in regards to their postoperative pain management? And how do we use that to really counsel patients regarding um, uh, management during informed consent? And, you know, I think it was talked about just a, a few minutes ago about the importance of buy-in. But I think for us, what we've really looked at is understanding what level of narcotics pain medicine people are on before surgery. And, and being able to query that through our statewide database has been actually very informative in managing patients postoperatively. And, and so, um, you know, I think it's good that in the United States, all, country, all of the states now throughout the country have those types of databases where practitioners are really empowered to investigate if their patients are on narcotics prior to surgery. And what I would submit to you in the audience is that it really informs your ability to manage patients postoperatively better if you understand what their preoperative pain uh, assessment and pain needs are. So we discuss narcotics preoperatively. We talk about multimodal therapy preoperatively, and we build a level of reassurance and pain management postoperatively before the operation happens. So in this patient who might call on day seven with continued pain or throbbing, a lot of times this is something in my practice, but probably in your practice too, is something that you might not hear about initially. It's your office that gets this phone call. So for most of the surgeries, if not all of them that happen in our department, the, the staff has really been educated in terms of their normal pain recovery following that type of an operation. So for someone who has pain day seven following a penile implant, a lot of times we have sort of embedded and educated within our staff to really provide a level of reassurance for patients and, and also re-education in terms of what their normal pain recovery would be following that type of an operation. But even yet, if you were to have a patient that continues to have pain, how do we manage it? This would be a scenario scenario where I was mentioning earlier, where we would actually work towards titrating gabapentin up first um, in terms of pain control. So, you know, one of the big side effects of gabapentin is actually drowsiness. So it's something that we have instructed our teams to uh, integrate in patient dosing to start at night. So we ordinarily increase the dose of gabapentin from 300 milligrams three times a day to maybe 600 milligrams three times a day, but that is started at night. And a lot of times we're able to monitor drowsiness through nursing phone calls to patients the following morning, and then we execute that throughout the day. So, so I think you know that's a little tip that we've used that we've had good benefit from. Setting preoperative pain expectations is key. Certainly, um, if you're committed to a pain management strategy like this one, you know, educating and incorporating your office staff to embracing that is important. And finally, considering neuropathic pain augmentation first might avoid the uh, step of needing to, to write for an opioid narcotic. Again, I want to thank uh, the panelists and, and Dr. Smith, and, um, and I'll look forward to Dr. Davies' talk now as well. Thank you, Dr. Simhan. A quick question. I was wondering if you could very briefly talk about uh, the importance of that preoperative uh, assessment of their opioid use. Um, we're all busy. The practicing urologist here is probably thinking yet another thing I have to add to my protocol, what I have to do. And 
are there any suggestions of where to get started, how to make that very efficient in your practice so that you're doing this regularly, but also doing it in a way that is, that is efficient? Yeah. So, so for us, we all live in a world of an EMR and, and, you know, in my, our EMR, it's been simply setting up an order set. And, and so that's something that we've done sort of in the office practice, as well as in the inpatient practice in order to execute outpatient uh, and inpatient medications. Um, and also part of that EMR is to be able to look up and investigate prior narcotics usage. And so that's all part of what we've incorporated as a part of our workflow. And, and again, some of it is habit forming and it shouldn't be tedious. And I think we live in a world where it doesn't have to be. Great. Thank you. Thank All right. You. Our final speaker is Dr. Davies. He's going to be speaking to us about uh, patient-reported outcomes in pain management. Um, so, Dr. Davies, please. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for inviting me to this uh, wonderful group of people, giving me five minutes to talk. That's probably adequate for my level. Um, and I noticed there's three Pittsburghers here and <laughs> one person from Philadelphia. Love that. That's classic. <laughs> Uh, very well represented. Well, thank you. I have no disclosures. Um, I don't take money from pharma. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, my approach to um, uh, minimally invasive surgery, specifically prostatectomy, but also nephrectomies. And um, unlike some other disciplines, we really can get away with safely not giving uh, narcotics. And it's probably a nature of what we're doing um, and having small incisions. And really, I'm an advocate have been for years for no narcotic surgery. And I'll run through a little bit why that is. Um, and, you know, I do, um, I like to think of myself as a humanist. And my topic today is going to be about not hurting patients. And that may seem like somewhat of a, a contradiction not to give narcotics and not to hurt patients. But really, the reality is that people out there listening to this lectures should realize that by not giving narcotics, you're not going to hurt patients. In fact, they're going to do great. Let's just start with my um, case presentation. This is a 55-year-old with group grade 4 prostate cancer. He had a history of pain problems uh, and had uh, L4 fusion and was on Percocet on and off. Um, and then he went through informed consent with me to have a prostatectomy. And he knew I was kind of a non-narcotic advocate and had a lot of anxiety, understandably, about that kind of approach for him. And I basically use the tools that have already been elaborated by Dr. Miller uh, and Dr. Suhan, and that is I tell them what, what's going to happen, and we're going to use a multimodal approach, very similar but with worse slides than Dr. Simhan. And, um, you know, we give Neurontin and Tylenol, sometimes Celebrex. Sorry, I don't have the shoot in there. Uh, and then we use a single shot of Repivacaine with Decadron and Prestex. We do total intravenous anesthesia with propofol and ketamine. This is the standard thing most hospitals will do now. And then they get Tylenol, Motrin, and that's it. Um, there's really not anything more complicated than that. And it's really set up in preparation for what's gonna happen. Um, I've been doing this for years and years, and many of these patients will go home the same day, probably about 50% leave um, in the afternoon after their prostatectomy. So you may think it's crazy to use no, no, no narcotics, but let me just start you with lower opioid consumption until we get to the no narcotic consumption. And this is a relatively famous, at least in our world, in the pain world, famous study in the New England Journal headed by Chad uh, Brummett, our friends from the University of Michigan. And this is just, if you just look in the middle line here, this is when they released their uh, guideline 
guidelines for their general surgeons. Um, these are enlarged uh, general surgery patients with big surgeries, and they released a set of guidelines. And you'll notice that the opioid consumption dropped off magically in the bottom. I mean, really, really plummeted to very, very little oxycodone use by patients. And you'll just see an absolute straight line of satisfaction in pain scores. So I thought this was dramatic, and that's great, you know, lower opioid consumption. But Dr. Davies believes in no opioid consumption. And we've done several large prospective studies, some of which are going to be published in large um, uh, uh, literature soon, but I'm going to give you a preview to some of it, and this is the sort of a nested study within a larger study of prostatectomy patients. You can see I'm in the non-opioid in the, in, the, in, in the white, and my colleagues are in the opioid section, and this is validated pain surveys, not just visual pain scores, but a very large validated pain survey, which has about 25 questions, and I'm going to go through just this, the, the domains here. So what about just pain? Are we? Am I hurting my patients by not getting the narcotics. Well, just cast your cast your eyes across the score here. The least pain experience, actually the opioid people I may have gotten a little bit more, but that's not statistically significant. Worst pain was equal, persistent pain was equal, time and severe pain was equal. What about activity in, in this cohort? Well, turns out uh, exactly the same across the board, whether they were my patients who got no opioids or my colleagues who got some opioids, the, the activity levels were exactly this in parity. Um, they could turn, they could walk, they can fall asleep fine postoperatively, they have no problems going to sleep. And the psychiatric component to this survey is actually uh, interesting. You'll notice that people who take opioids get, tend to get more anxious. This is a well-known phenomenon with opioid administration, uh, an increase in anxiety, and that's statistically significant. Um, and what and the depressed, frightened, and helpless are about the same between the two cohorts. Um, for reasons I can't describe, I didn't put the N here, or uh, but there's really this cohort's about split about 100 and 100. So these are large amounts of people who've gone through surgery, either non-opioid or opioid. And really, with this kind of patient-reported outcome, I can't see why anybody with the appropriate setup and mechanism would give opioids for minimally invasive surgery, particularly prostatectomy and also nephrectomy. So that's really it. I'm just here to sort of hit it, hit it out, uh, out of the ballpark at the end because you guys did such a great job of really explaining everything. Well, thank you so much. I, we're at time, so I just want to um, put up these take-home messages for our practicing urologists and others who are tuning in. Thank you to the AUA for the opportunity. And again, thank you to our expert panel of speakers.